This is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome to the Sidcast. Did you know what the top three uh, highest revenue-grossing Broadway shows in history are? I know one of them, and that is Wicked. And actually, it's in the same company as Phantom of the Opera and, and, and The Lion King. More than a billion dollars in revenue. And you ever think about where that came from? Where Who, who wrote this book uh, that the play is based on? Uh, well, uh, I was wondering about it. And uh, it turns out it's Gregory Maguire. And uh, I am just overjoyed to be able to tell you that Gregory Maguire is our guest today on the, on the Sidcast. And, um, you know, to generate a, a mega success like this... Uh, is quite a quite a story to hear to hear uh, Gregory's uh, Gregory's own personal story of how he got there, and uh, as as is the case for many writers, a lot of struggles along the way, way more than ten thousand hours of writing. Uh, he comes from a family of uh, of writers, and uh, you know it was very difficult for him to break through, but finally uh, finally he did, and even when uh, when Wicked came out. Um, if you go look at the old New York Times review, it was not a particularly good review. And then a week later, the LA Times gives it a review, and it's a it's a fantastic review. And that's the thing that really triggered uh, triggered this uh, this knowledge, this uh, uh, this notoriety around uh, around the book and eventually the play. Uh, just a really fascinating uh, person. So uh, another thing you're gonna you're gonna hear about Gregory Gregory McGuire is really one of the most articulate people we've uh, we've ever met it's such a pleasure to talk to him and he's a, he's a writer but this is this is someone who actually he speaks almost as he writes um, and that's pretty uh, pretty amazing I got a lot of ums and ahs and has as I'm talking uh, but Gregory is just uh, so uh, so fluent such a uh, such a pleasure uh, to talk to and uh, and we talk about a lot of things from uh, what a uh, uh, what the creative mind is, to what writing is like, to the role of our parents, to the sacrifices that our parents have made, and many other things. Uh, really, really fascinating. So it's a, a great pleasure to welcome to the Sidcast, Gregory Maguire. Welcome to the Sidcast, and my guest today is Gregory Maguire. Hi, Gregory. Hello, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks, uh, thanks for being part of this. Uh, you know, I've been really excited once, uh, once I knew you were going to come on the podcast because uh, a big theme in this podcast is trying to understand how people became who they became and what, made them, what makes them tick. And in a sense, you know, with Wicked, uh, you told us all the backstory to the, for the Wicked Witch of the West. And so um, it's kind of a natural for you. Uh, so I, I'd like to know a little bit about your background. So you grew up, I guess, in the Albany area. That's right? correct. I grew up in Albany, New York. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I could characterize myself as, as a standard issue Irish Catholic uh, second generation immigrant kid. If you wanted to picture me, from the late 1950s, you'd see the middle child of seven with a lot of dirt under the fingernails <laughs> and uh, probably a holy, you know, holy medal around his neck because I went to all, all Catholic schools all the time, all the way through. Uh, and a kid who was puzzled, slightly solemn, a little bit alone, given I had six siblings. Well, that's, a, that's surprising, because the household was buzzing all the, the time. The household was buzzing all the time, uh, but I was buzzing inside my own head, too. In any characterization, I think, uh, there have to be uh, dynamic opposite statements that can be said that are both 
true. And so, yes, I was, on the one hand, the middle child of seven, social kid. I organized the play groups. Mm. I figured out what we were going to sing for the Christmas carol concerts that I devised for our parents who hated Christmas carols. (laughs) And at the same time, the interior life of a kid who felt slightly oppressed by life circumstances was a real and valid thing, too. Yeah, that's very interesting. It it is true about uh, all of us as people. We have these kind of contrasting things. I think about it in a totally different context than what you just brought up. Just as a quick aside, because I do, uh, I'm a professor in a business school, and I do a lot of work with leaders, um, coaching them and uh, teaching them and writing about that. And uh, what makes for a good leader? It turns out it's very often opposites that uh, are required. Not everybody gets that. Right. You have to negotiate, actually, uh, between the, the skillas and charybdises, or charybdises, if there are, of, of, of your own uh, turmoil, mm. in order to chart a safe way, mm. and in order to uh, survive into adulthood. So can I, can I ask you, I know you had some challenges when you were very, very young. I don't know if you remember any of that, but um, your mom died. Uh, your first mom, I guess, as you called right. her, uh, died um, when you were born. Uh, that's right. And actually, I never called her my mom because you can only use the word mom for somebody you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my first mother died. That's what she you called her first mother. My first mother. I never, in fact, until, when you said the word mom, I thought, wow, I'm 64 and I've never heard her, address, I've never heard her yeah. reference as mom. She wasn't my mom. She was my mother. Right. And I say this to my own adopted children, and I say, I'm... I'm you know, I'm your dad because you have a dad. Right. You know, I, I'm your dad because I act as a dad. That woman, my first mother, didn't act as a mom because she was dead. She died of the week I was born of right. complications resulting from childbirth. But I did have a mom. I had a second mother, and she was both my second mother, mm-hmm. but she was also my mom because she was the one who made lunches and gave out milk money and uh, raised me to be uh, a citizen and a writer. Right, right. What... Uh what are some, some of the first memories you have as a, as a kid? Isn't it interesting, and I wonder whether you agree with me, that very often the memories that you can hold in your fingers as uh, this might be the earliest thing are never really verifiable because they may be memories that were implanted in you by adults who saw you doing yes. X or Y or Z. And you actually don't remember... Whether you actually remember this, you remember being told this story and you've incorporated it. At any rate, I was in a a Catholic infant home, or an orphanage as it used to be called, until my father remarried after my first mother died. And I think perhaps I was put back in the infant home once or twice as his second wife, my my second mother, Mm -hmm. uh, was pregnant. And, and and delivering. And so he was an Irish Catholic male of a certain generation, certain inclination, yes. disposition. And so he farmed out the kids when his uh, second wife was in labor and in pregnancy and, and collected them again. I think I might have gone back to the orphanage for care for a couple of weeks. But at any rate, the memory that you asked for is this. I was back in the house, back in the family home, and apparently I had not spoken for some weeks and was morose. Mm. Abandonment can do strange things to a kid, and I was morose. But it was around Halloween, and eventually I was put into a mask and walked up and down the sidewalk 
of our little block to collect candy in a paper bag. Uh, I just certainly don't remember that I ever knew about Halloween, but what I'm told and what I think I remember mm-hmm. is coming back into the house and sitting down on the bottom step of the front hall staircase, mm-hmm. dumping the candy out onto the carpet, mm-hmm. the way kids will do. And I'm told that I smiled for the first time, uh, perhaps in my life. <laughs> so, you know, sugar, a sugar rush will do it for most of us. <laughs> That's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, but do I actually remember that, or do I remember being told that? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is lost in the mist of time. Yeah. How old would you have been, do you think? I could, if it was the time that I came back from the orphanage the first time, I could have been about two, two and a half. But most of us don't remember memories from no. quite that old. So I suspect I might have been about four uh, and because I have a number of younger half-siblings, uh, so my second mother was in, in labor and pregnancy um, several times in the mm-hmm. first six years. And so I think I might have been about four, which sounds about right for one's yeah. first memory. Yeah, so it's a great, it's a great um, uh, recollection because when you're talking about throwing the candy out on the carpet, I did it on the bed. Uh, I don't know if it was the first time I smiled, but, and I don't think I was four. I was probably a little bit older. But I have two older brothers, and um, they would descend on that bed. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'd have to negotiate to keep what I could. Yes. Um, and you learn, you, well, you have a lot of siblings. You learn pretty quickly how to manage, uh, how to survive in a, uh, uh, in occasionally a cutthroat environment, even the most loving of families. My brothers are wonderful, and we all love each other, but candy is candy. Can, can, candy is candy, and cutthroat is a great adjectival phrase for it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, so uh, you, uh, you, you grew up in, uh, in this kind of big family, extended family, and uh, um, there was something you noted or I read about that you and several of your siblings are writers. That's correct. My father uh, was a journalist. Uh, he became a, a feature story writer and human interest story writer after his first wife died. He had been trying to make ends meet as a stringer in upstate New York, which is the state capital, as you know, of New York, uh, for Time, Newsweek, Life, the New York Times. And he'd been filing stories and getting, you know, $2.50 for a story here or there. He also tried to write detective fiction of the sort that was published in pulp magazines in the 50s, you know, hard-boiled dick um, detective fiction. Mm. But it really wasn't working, and he was... uh, uh, Impoverished is 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 putting a roseate gloss gloss on it. I mean, we we were we were pretty destitute, as I understand it, up until the time his wife died, leaving him with four children under the age of eight. At that point, he pulled his socks up uh, after he recovered from a subsequent heart attack. He pulled his socks up, went out and got a full time job in the newspaper business, mm-hmm. a job he maintained pretty much until his death. So I grew up in a household in which. Not only was there love of language, admiration for the ability to spin a sentence, Mm. and a kind of appreciation for what truth could be told Mm. in stories, but I also grew up in a family in which there was a subdermal tendency to panic and trauma because of the death of, of my first mother. My parents were very strict. My father, my second mother, uh, when people say, well, how strict were they? I mean, come on, strict is strict. How strict were they? I say, honestly, that the seven children in our family were not allowed 
to ride bicycles until we had reached the age of 16 and had passed the New York State driver's license exam. For bicycle riding. For bicycle riding. We had to, we had to be legally ready to drive a car right. before we were allowed to get so on this a two-wheeler was a, bicycle. this was fear of, of you getting, getting hurt? Fear of death. No. Fear of death. Yeah, fear of losing another precious member on the, in the family bouquet. And that's one example, but it must have permeated the whole household. The whole household. Also because my father had a bad heart. He had had two heart attacks by the time I could, can remember. Uh, we also tiptoed on eggshells around right. issues of anger and expression of high yeah. feeling in order that his heart wouldn't explode and we'd be responsible for his death. So these sound like the conditions in which maybe the Bronte children lived up on the, on the moors in, in the parsonage called Haworth or whatever it is called. Uh, and indeed, there was some reality to that. Mm. We were restricted. We weren't like the kids in survivalist families who couldn't go out. But right. we, had, we had many more restrictions upon us than were common in the fairly liberal early 1960s. What we did have was the liberty of the library. Huh. And we had the liberty of the pencil and the pen and the liberty of our creative imaginations. And to the extent that I'm at all... Uh, in possession of any mental health, it is thanks to the American system of the public library. Open public library, you can go, and that's your playground. That's your playground. It is a passport. The library card is a passport mm. to any adventure that uh, one's mind can think to look for or one's mind can apprehend even if one wasn't looking for it. Right. Now, I can imagine... Uh, other kids growing up in the same type of environment that you were growing up in that wouldn't that that maybe only had the library as a primary outlet, but would not have produced um, a whole bunch of writers, including you know yourself. So there's something else going on. There, there, there you know, there, and I I have come around to thinking that there is actually uh, such a thing as uh, the transmission through genes of a creative impulse. I mean, look mm -hmm. at the Bach family. Look at you know, many many other families sure. families of, of Renaissance painters where. There's a pair of fees, uh, painters uh, with the same names. My father uh, probably passed down to his children uh, an inclination to be clever with language, but the household environment also mm. fostered that. We kept the Merriam-Webster dictionary mm. in the kitchen next to the three cookbooks because scarcely a family meal would go by where somebody, adult or child, would say, what? What is the origin of that word? We were all interested in etymology, and we knew mm. that OHG meant Old High German, and we knew what the, mm. the acronyms meant at the back of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, because even the history of language itself is, is a way of, of charting the stories we've told ourselves from the, about the cultures that produced us. Yeah. So a lot of paths to becoming uh, a writer, of course, probably as many paths as there are writers. Uh, you're describing a particular uh, set of circumstances that helped a great deal. And I think you've also acknowledged there might be a genetic component to it, to it as well. But I, I just find it fascinating that, that so many in your family ended up going into almost like a family business. And I also wonder, so your father... Uh, you, you said he had written a novel or a detective story? Detective or, stories, yes. And I take it that they were not particularly successful. Because. I'm not sure that he... I, he may have sold one or two, but it was clearly not going to be the way that he yeah. earned his bread and butter, or even just his butter. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so I'm thinking about the psychological side and not just the kind of the, the physical and the social side of it. Um, and whether there's something to that that you, you grew up with a, with a dad that you love very much, that you were worried about because you were brought up to worry about him because of his, con his health conditions, health condition, heart condition, uh, but that maybe there's some unfinished business. Well, yes, and I, with, with, uh, with deference, I will uh, amend your statement. Mm. I didn't really love him very much. I did respect him, mm. and I grew to love him, but he was, he was somewhat harsh as a father, especially to me. I think uh, he was not uh, gifted in psychological nuance. So I think he probably wasn't even able to observe in himself that he was harder on me than on the other six children. And I think it was because my, the very fact of my existence in the world was the reason he had lost his first wife. And I do believe that to be true. When I dove into writing stories... Uh, it was a way to escape a great sadness and a great mm -hmm. sense of uh, responsibility um, that is, is not a simple thing, and I, I don't think I'm just spinning it in a kind of Oprah like we all suffer. This is my particular trauma mm -hmm. uh, way of thinking of it. It was a hard childhood, and my siblings have recognized that I had it harder than they did. Mm. They, they, my siblings and eventually my second mother said, yes, he was harder on you. But I was strong, and I used my capacity to make things to invent for myself a set of narratives in which people survive what life throws at them. Mm. They don't crumple. They move forward. They get to the last chapter, and then they get beyond the last chapter. I think that, and I can prove this. Actually, this is not just a spinning okay. for the sake of a, for the sake of airtime. I started writing when I was about kindergarten, and I started writing stories, uh, serious chapter stories. By the time I was ten, and I have most of them. I have a box about two thirds, the, about a third the size of this table over which we're sitting, filled with manuscripts. Uh, hundreds, thousands of pages of stories that I wrote between the ages of 10 and 20. And, and when I look back, especially at the earlier ones, the first couple, of, uh, mm. first couple of years, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, almost all of the stories feature someone whose life is in terrible danger mm. and the attempt by the protagonist to rescue them. Mm. I look back and I think I was, it was partly psychological profiling of myself but it was also partly me using the agency of storytelling to retell the story of my mother's death so that in one version or another, she wouldn't have to die and I would be able to rescue her. Wow. When did you realize you were doing that? Not until I was in my late 20s and I began to speak with children about storytelling and I began to look back. I prepared a, a slide presentation yep. based on my childhood work mm -hmm. to say, look, any bozo can do this. I mm -hmm. was not the, you know, the brightest banana in the bunch, um, but if I could do it, you could do it. And I, I began to examine those early works. Mm -hmm. There they are, proof positive. I wasn't... I myself, being the son of my father, wasn't particularly psychologically nuanced at that stage. But I was using the tools that I had to stay alive. And that is why I became a storyteller, and that is why I remain a storyteller to this day. 
Yeah, that's, uh, it's very interesting to see how all these things play out. And the fact that you had them and kept them, the fact that you kept them in and of itself says something, uh, but that you, were, had a, you had a chance to reinterpret them or interpret them. You probably right. didn't interpret them the first time. You just did it. It's right. part of your therapy as living, as a human being. Right, right. Yeah. Right. No, I was all, all about production. I, when I would finish a story, I would uh, write the end on it, and I'd go get another notebook or another set start of papers. I would start another one. Sometimes that very you know, minute, I, I was fiendishly productive. Uh, did, you, did you ever read the Malcolm Gladwell uh, book called Outliers? I did. You remember the first chapter talks about how the Beatles maybe became the Beatles precisely because some other group in Hamburg, Germany, had had to cancel, and they had the opportunity as young people to play twice as often as yes. any other group at that point, and how Bill Gates had the opportunity because his parents right. That's that allowed 10, him. That's 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. Mm. When I read that about the fact that if you, you, you may not have to be brilliant, but if you manage to get in 10,000 hours of practice at your passion before you turn 21, the chances that you might be good at it mm. and succeed at it mm. uh, could be higher. And I believe I put in 10,000 hours of storytelling right. before I got out of college. Yeah. There's, uh, I, I get that argument, and I read that book, and it's a fascinating book, and uh, you could see it. But you, know, you, wouldn't, you or anyone else wouldn't keep at it unless there was some, some reinforcement that was going on in a variety of different ways. Certainly with Bill Gates, he was like, he was discovering the world. Well, so were you, I suppose, yeah. in, your, in your own world, right? You, well, you, the instinct toward mental health is a really fierce instinct. <laughs> it's like trying to, it's like setting out for shore when the, the ship has sunk. You know, it's, it, you may not think you can swim, but you're pretty damn well going to try to learn pretty fast if you can see the shore on the horizon. Yeah, you're going exactly. to set out and try to get there. And this uh, pace of writing, finish one, the end, start the next one, how, how is that, that way, now that you're a professional writer and a, and a very successful writer? Do you, uh, do you keep that, that workload, that pace? It is true that now I've been, I've been in print and in print as a professional paid writer for 41 years this year, I think. Uh, it's true that the pace has started to slow down, but I usually have two or three projects at various stages of development mm. uh, running throughout a calendar year. Now, there might be three or four or five months where I'm actually not composing new prose or not editing a, a, you know, draft mm -hmm. seven of something. But I'm always using language mm -hmm. and my writing skills uh, in other ways when I'm not actually creating fiction. For instance, I have been an, uh, an obsessive journal keeper. I've, been, I've kept a journal for over 50 years wow. uh, by hand uh, for the first 42 years. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so if I'm not writing fiction, then I, then I sit down and write what it was like to drive to Hanover, New Hampshire on a, a bleary, dreary Saturday and uh, have a nice chat about where I came from, where I'm going. That's, that's a, 50 years of journaling. Yeah. Do you think you'll write about that in some form as an autobiography or something like that? I don't intend to. I do know David Sedaris uh, recently uh, he published, published uh, some of those uh, diaries, some of those diaries yeah. and I've, I've met him once or twice, and I think, well, he's always a little bit ahead of me, <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't want to be seen to be, uh, to be imitating him, but I also think his sensibility 
was a lot quirkier than yes. mine earlier. And I also suspect it's quite possible those aren't verbatim journals. Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, and he also has a big family and a lot of, well, I don't know whether you had characters in your family, but he certainly describes them that way. In yes, I, I had characters, but if I had them as wild out as that, yes. I, I wouldn't describe them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, he's, uh, and isn't it, he's one of the ones who gave us the term truthiness, I think. Is uh, he the one that? Or, well, he certainly was one of, I know Colbert said it and right. somebody else right. said it, but but I think... I think he. I don't know if that's a service uh, to the uh, republic of these days. Well, I'm 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 not sure, and I'm I think maybe it's a service to our our contemporary conception of the arts mm. and how valid storytelling can be, or how suspect it can be. There are a lot of deep questions there we yeah. could we could unpack. Well, what you're but, bringing up here about you know journaling and and accuracy. Uh, is also akin to what you had said a bit a bit earlier about the stories you remember. When I asked you what's the first story you remember, and, and I think you quite accurately said, well, I don't know if it really happened, but people may have told me that, and it kind of has this mishmash, and, and it forms into a reality. I think that's very, very common. And I think maybe psychologists study this, I don't know, but what, how, are those, how do those stories form, and which ones actually stick with you? Because you're, you're, I have two older brothers. Your older brother tells you something. This happened, and you think it happened to you. You're sure it right, happened to right. you. And there's lots of people who have written about that and talked about that. Right. Uh, it's really fascinating. But what sticks? What becomes that narrative that you have created? Right. Well, it's a, it's a real good question. And, and to go back to the first question you asked, and now I'll answer it a second time, because this is a memory I am sure that I have. Okay. And, and the reason I'm sure is, is because it is a memory of experience that nobody else knew about. Ah. So only I could have it. Uh, my father's mother was visiting from the Bronx, and she was at the table, and my parents had reminded all their children not to interrupt Grandma and to be polite. We were preternaturally polite children. But nonetheless, at a certain point from my high chair, I had something to say. I had something to add. And I burbled up and and babbled and interrupted uh, Grandma McGuire. And my parents said, wait, wait, Gregory, Grandma's speaking. Wait till uh, she's done. And I shut my mouth and without listening to her, you know, that inane old woman. I had no, no, no intention to listen, but I just waited to say my piece. Yes. And when she was done, one of my parents turned to me and said, okay, Gregory, now what were you going to say? I could not remember what I was going to say. This is eight, eight, 10, 15 seconds later. And I looked at both my parents to say, I don't know, what was I going to say? And they looked at me and I realized they don't know what I was going to say. I am separate from them. Right. I am alone. Huh? I am distinct. And it is my head, not their heads. And that's my first, my, my, my truly oldest memory that I can confirm because I could find out when grandma came to visit. She only visited us twice. I was very young. Mm-hmm. I was between three and four. Wow. And, and it is a, a memory, possibly, pardon me, a memory of panic, of individuation, but it is also a memory of power. I can have secrets. I can have my own mind. And that's the first valid memory that I have in right. my life. Now, Gregory, how much of this that you're describing is an interpretation, the power part? Today, as, a, as an adult, you, you realize that? I mean, is it possible? Well, this is just more general. Is it possible for a three- or four- or five-year-old kid to, to articulate in some form that 
this is this gives me power that I'm separate from everyone else that I'm an individual. Right. You're, I think you're saying they, that you can, or you at least you felt. Well, that. I certainly uh, the the feeling was genuine. Yeah. The analysis of what the feeling right. was about right. is an adult apprehension. Right. But I remember that feeling of of mild panic mm. and and mild strength. And now yeah. I can say what I think it it was about. But I remember the feeling, and it was it yeah. could it was a little bit sad too. You know, yeah. it was a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit worrying I to a little kid. How, I think about how many times I, everyone else says, "What was I going to say again?" As you get older, you say it too often. Right? <laughs> yes. And now you're going to, you're, you're, you're actually giving me a little lesson. I, I'm not going to expect my wife to know it. <laughs> of course, after all these years of marriage, she knows. She, she usually know does. <laughs> she, she probably knows more than I'm about to say. But yeah, it is, it is me and and, yeah. and I and I can't, uh, you know, you, you can't know what that is. How could anyone else know it? Right. Is? Right, and that's one of the things that that one has to learn in order to grow up. That one is actually a, a, a kind of you. You might be in orbit around a common mm-hmm. sun, but you are in your own orbit. Right, and isn't it kind of amazing when you build a relationship? Could be with a sibling, could be with a spouse, um, where you can almost finish each other's sentences. Yes, where you're still the individual, but there's such a bond and understanding that that you know I know what you're going to say. Right. Right. And it's still interesting. To right. Me. Right. And I think you can come back to that. I mean, I think I think possibly in the in the uh, chronology of the assemblage of the ego, let's say, mm. uh, you figure out your individual and then later on, perhaps much later, you figure out I am part of a tribe. And part of what I think and feel is what the tribe thinks and feels. Mm. And I think as human beings, we have often forgot that, but I do believe that that's true too. Right. We're talking with Gregory McGuire. Let's take a short break and be right back. Did you know that Gregory McGuire is actually the third guest we've had in the SIDCast from the world of, uh, of theater? Uh, we've had uh, Marisa Smith, the playwright, and Carol Dunn, who uh, is the executive director of uh, Northern Stage in uh, White River Junction, Vermont, and among other things. And uh, it gives me a, an excuse, really, to do a very short commercial for, for theater for public theater, for small town and regional theater, and even for Broadway theater. And nobody's, uh, nobody's paying uh, me or the SIDCast for this. It's just that I love, I love creativity. I love, I love the theater. I love the beauty of a live performance. And if you've seen Wicked on Broadway, if you've seen any of the great shows at places like the Northern Stage, you know, you know what I mean. So uh, go, out and, uh, go out and see a show. Um, you're going to feel better for it, and you're going to be supporting the theater, including regional or maybe especially regional theater. We're back with Gregory McGuire, and we've been talking a lot about uh, your early years, Gregory, and your memories, and kind of what made you who you ended up uh, being, who you are today. Uh, and I want, to, I want to just continue that journey and that conversation, take you up into your into your teenage years. And uh, um, and the question is really, you know, when uh, you're, you're you're a gay man, and you 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 recognize that at some point, and um, I'd like to know when that was and. What was going on in your head at that time? Because you you came from a devout Catholic family, as you described. Yes, that's true. Uh, a, a devout Catholic family and a traditional environment. Mm. However, t- uh, in in correction against some misapprehensions mm. about how monolithic Catholicism is uh, and was, uh, it's true in Catholicism as it is in every religion I've ever uh, encountered that there's a wide spectrum of political. Uh, identifications available within the umbrella yes, of, let's say, true. the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there are 
there are Protestants who are very strict, Calvinist and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. self-denial. There are Protestants that are very liberal and think having a lot of money in the bank mm-hmm. is a good thing. And, <laughs> and, and the same is true among uh, the Jews that I know and among the Muslims that I know. Uh, so in the Catholic world in which I grew up, I happened to grow up at a time and in a place where the Catholicism itself was traditional but liberal. It was the social justice um, breed, mm. you know, uh, branch of, of Catholicism. Uh, I grew up, in fact, I used to joke, I grew up uh, in the, the Catholic wing of the Catholic Church, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say there was an inclination toward inclusivity, mm. toward tolerance, uh, but it was still Catholic. It was yeah. still the nuns. It was still the sacraments. It was still paying attention to the mm-hmm. rules. It was still the commandments, etc. So uh, I realized from very early on, the part of the time period that we were talking about earlier, even from almost infancy, that I didn't quite feel as if I necessarily was like my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most people feel that. I didn't mm. characterize it in yeah. any way. By the time I was in late high school, and again in a, in a Catholic high school in Albany, New York, I began to recognize what I at that point characterized in myself as an unusually tolerant um, capacity for affection for my male friends as well as my female friends. Mm. I, I didn't distinguish. I didn't call it romance, and I didn't... Uh, I wasn't uh, sexed up enough to mm. call it testosterone drive mm. of any sort. I just felt, well, boy, isn't it great to be in the in the late '60s and early '70s and to have more liberty of the heart than mm. maybe people did ten or fifteen years earlier. Yep. I didn't identify it as a tendency to be gay. Precisely, but I suppose on some level I was lying to myself, and I was I was not ready to name uh, that possibility until I was until I moved on into college. Now, one of the things that I did in high school was play the guitar at Catholic Mass every day for four years. I was the music leader, and I would get to church. I would get to the high school early, tune up the guitar, organize the music. And so I attended mass six times a week all through high school. Wow. Uh, when I got into college, my pastor uh, approached me and said, I would like you to come and start a choir, a, a, a kind of contemporary music choir. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're called folk groups, but I'd like, we'd like to call it contemporary music because we, we weren't actually singing folk songs. But we were, okay. using, we were using instruments that untrained kids could use, which is mostly guitars and bongos. But I I played the piano. I started a choir, which in fact is still operational more than 40 years later in the same same parish, and I established its meets and bounds, and I found my association with the faith and with the church very rewarding to me. Indeed, I I considered for some years whether or not I had a calling to the priesthood, Mm. and I I looked into it. I actually interviewed at a couple of seminaries uh, as I was getting ready to leave college and and think about whether whether if I I didn't feel, as they say, called, (laughs) if I didn't feel called to a heterosexual marriage, well, maybe, maybe that was a way God had of talking to me about giving up the notion of having a 
much of a sexual life and and going into a life of service mm. instead. Mm. Uh, I didn't do that. I didn't become a priest. I didn't go into the seminary. I was advised not to. In fact, by a very dear friend of mine who was a young priest, who said, "They will. Uh, this will kill you. You know, don't do it. You have more to give than the church knows how to take. Stay out of the oh. church and become an artist, and you will be you. you His will friend be, knew knew you. Really. Yes, you will be able to do more good yeah. using your talent in the wider world." The church will try to take that talent from you for your own good, and that is not mm. that's not a, a that won't be a wise thing for you. And, and so, right. move aside. So I did. I, I followed his advice. I think I probably would have realized anyway that at that point I was hiding. I would have been hiding from the implications of realizing that I was gay. Um, and if there's one thing that I have really do have believed in my whole life is that if my birth mother gave her life in order that I could live, mm-hmm. then one of the mm-hmm. moral tenets upon which my life must rest, one of the strongest struts, has to be to live honorably and honestly. She didn't sacrifice her life in order to create somebody who was going to lie, in order to give liberty to uh-huh. somebody who wasn't brave enough to live. Mm-hmm. So that... that um, that sort of moral thrust, the propulsion, the jet fuel, the moral jet fuel of having to live a life that was worth it made me always have more courage than I might otherwise have (laughs) have been able to say I was born with. Uh, I had to have courage in order to realize I was both Catholic and gay. And as we sit here today, I am still both Catholic and gay. Uh, Hasn't been easy. My, my joke about it is that, well, I'm a practicing Catholic, which means I have to practice a lot because it isn't easy. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't quite learned it yet, but, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. but I'm, still, I'm still practicing. I'm mm-hmm. still trying to be a good Catholic. Uh, that said, to, be, uh, to try to be clear, when I say that I'm a Catholic, I don't mean that I personally endorse a view that to be Catholic is to be better than or more uh, inspired than the Holy Spirit, as it were, any other way of believing or not believing. What I mean is that's the coat that was given me when I was young. It's a coat of metaphors, and it's a code of honor and behavior. It's the coat that I learned to wear when I wanted to learn about moral behavior, and it's the coat that fits. It's my coat. You can borrow it. <laughs> I've tried to. I've tried to make cut down versions for my adopted kids. Yes, uh, it is not a coat that is comfortable to wear, especially in the last couple of decades with the business about the sex abuse uh, of yes. minors and children by priests and the cover up mm. by the hierarchy of the church. Mm. Uh, but it is a coat that I try to wear anyway because the teachings of the church, the lore, the myth, the sentiment the drama and theater of uh, the Catholic culture uh, was what I breathed when I was a child, and I recognize it as as a suitable growing medium for me as a man in my mid-60s. Yeah, wow. I'm really taken aback at that, that, that answer in a lot of different parts, but I'll just share one, one part that really uh, resonated with me when you talked about your, uh, um, your first mother, 
who uh, died as a consequence of childbirth when you were born, and that you could not accept that she would die in vain. You had to fulfill a certain moral um, potential for yourself. Uh, it's very, very um, powerful. I can imagine different ways to interpret that from a lot of other people. But I actually, I connect to it quite closely um, because a very different scenario, but both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. Oh, my goodness. And why did they survive? Um, why do I exist? Right. And you can't waste that. Right. Uh, it's just wrong. You have to do something with that. Um, and so it's a little... It's not, it's, not, it's not something that it's really all, all that easy to talk about. But listeners, the lines are opening. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let me know what you think. No, just kidding. Yeah. But it is, it, 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 it is hard to say. But sometimes it's worth uh, saying out loud mm. things that are intimate. I mean, that, you know, the, the moral, uh, as I said, the moral jet fuel of one's life is uh, in some ways a lot more intimate to talk about than one's sexuality. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is how uh, I have propelled myself uh, through my challenges mm -hmm. and how I set for myself goals that would make my life worth living. There's a wonderful poem by Edgar Lee Masters. You probably know it called Lucinda Matlock. Mm. Edgar Lee Masters, author of the Spoon River Anthology. Okay. And there's a set of 150 or 200 monologues, of most of them printed on one side of a sheet of paper in which people speak from the grave, from the Spoon River Cemetery, and they speak little monologues of their life. And the one called Lucinda Matlock talks about how she lived into her 90s and how she met her husband and bore 16 children, and now she's laid to rest. And the end of it goes, what is this I hear of s sorrow, discontent, mm drooping spirits, degenerate sons and daughters, life is too much for you. It takes life to love life. And that's one of my cradles. Mm -hmm. I take life so that I can love life because it is an obligation put upon me. It's actually an obligation put upon all of us. Mine is just more theatrical. <laughs> Yeah, no, if only more people would take on that uh, responsibility and opportunity. Um, and it's a great, um, thank you for the little theatrical performance <laughs> there. Um, so uh, when did you know, I guess you could answer by the age of 10 here, but when did you know you're going to become or try to become a professional writer? I had my first idea for a, for a story that would eventually become published when I was in high school, mm -hmm. but I still thought of writing as my hobby not as a professional ambition. Indeed, I pretty much went through, I kind of bumbled through high school and college trying to avoid thinking about life after college because I really couldn't conceive of it. I couldn't conceive of being married, huh. and I could conceive of having children, but I couldn't conceive of having a wife. I couldn't kind of figure out, right. I couldn't see myself in that uh, scenario. And yet it was upstate New York in the early 70s, so nor could I conceive of anything else. It was mm. a real, it was a mm. black screen. What is going to be life like after graduation? I just kept my head down and made stories because in some ways that helped me avoid thinking about, yes. should I be taking a degree in business administration or 
go to the London or... School of Economics. I mean, you know. <laughs> You've been so, Googling around. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, but at a certain point, I looked at a manuscript I had written in college, and I thought it was 220 pages, and I thought this isn't, I mean, I've read things that are worse than this that are actually in print. Maybe, I'm, maybe I've actually developed into a writer who can make some money at it without even setting out to do so. So I typed up that manuscript and sent it around to publishers. And after two years of trying, Farrar Strauss and Drew accepted it, my first book, when I was 23. Wow. A lot, of, a lot of publishers said no first. It's, well, yes. It's a actually, classic story, right? Not a lot. Four, four, three said no first, but each one kept it for six months. And I didn't do multiple submissions, so I just had to wait until the manuscript came back. I only even had one copy of the manuscript. I didn't even have a carbon. Wow, that's scary. Yeah, I just typed one copy and mailed it off right. over a two-year period. Never got lost in the mail. Never got Thank goodness for shredded. That. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you, you sold the book. They wanted it, and you got a, you got an advance or some arrangement. Yes, I got a, I got a mammoth advance of a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars book mm-hmm. at the age of twenty four. Maybe I was just twenty five when it came out. Yeah. I forget. But how, how yeah. did you feel when that happened? Oh, pretty pretty, pretty amazing. Very great. I when I when I got the phone, uh, the letter that said yes, in fact, thank you for making those changes. We think we are going to. Um, make you an offer, please give a call. I called the New York house. At that point, I had moved to Boston, mm. and I was taking a master's degree in children's literature at Simmons College. I had mm. just started a couple of weeks earlier, and I was so thrilled that I took the tea down to uh, the Back Bay station, and I got on a Greyhound bus and went back to Albany, landed in downtown Albany, took a taxi up to my parents' home, rang the doorbell. My parents opened the door and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I just sold my first book. And I, uh, my father poured me a glass of scotch to nice. welcome me into nice. the circle of writers. And my second mother gave me a great big bear hug, perhaps oh. the only big bear hug I got from her in her whole life. Uh. But it was the genuine uh, elation and celebration all around. When something great like that happens, you want to tell someone. It's very interesting who that person is. Yeah. And when you're young, it's not surprising it would be, it would be parents. Yes. Uh, yeah, so um, you continued on kind of an academic track at the same time as writing. Right. Um, was that kind of, let's have a traditional type of job, uh, career, just in case I can't make a living out, out of selling books? I tried so hard not ever to have any um, fallback positions mm-hmm. <laughs> because I was afraid that I was perhaps too timid. And if, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. if I invented for myself fallback positions, I would use them. So I tried not to identify escape hatches or have plan Bs. I just kept pushing forward with my plan A. By the time I was 25 or so, I had, it had begun to occur to me that one of the reasons I got to be 25 Mm -hmm. is the great writers of children's books from the late 19th, early 20th, middle 20th centuries had been my therapists and my saints and guardians. Uh The writers whose books I could find in the library, including people like Madeleine Lengel and C.S. Lewis and Marie Sendak and, mm. and the, especially the great fantasists, mm. uh, they had been my spirit guides. They'd been my spirit animals. And I began to be able to conceptualize by the time I was 25 that writing for children was just as moral a, an objective as being a minister and 
offering the sacraments and, 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 and the comfort yeah. of, a, of a wise ear. So I wanted to do for children what these great writers of the past had done for me. Once that began to settle down in my head, mm. then I did have an ambition. My first book was a children's book. I didn't, I didn't realize it. In fact, I sent, <laughs> I sent it to the, to the adult department because mm-hmm. I didn't even recognize that it was for children. But I do think that many people in their loneliness and in their sadness are rescued by finding a kindred soul in the voice of a writer mm. who is whispering across a white page right into their ear. Yeah. That seems to me almost holy. Yeah. And I thought, that's, I want to be able to do that. I want to whisper to people who, who need to hear from me. It's very interesting that the comparison you make is to going to service in the church, which is something you had considered, as opposed to, say, I don't know, a totally different career. Being a teacher is a noble profession, to be sure, or being a, or, or continuing as a writer, but not, not necessarily for children. So it's all kind of tied in. Uh, um, that was your, kind of your framing, almost, that you wanted to contribute in some holy way, some moral way. Yes, and, and uh, I can imagine... Uh, people rolling their eyes. Anybody who talks about his or her own holiness uh, is is rightly suspect, and, and there should be, a, you know, I, I should probably be, you know, hauled out into the schoolyard and strung up on the flagpole. But we can't deny that if we recognize an instinct to help in ourselves, mm. why pretend that we're everything else except for that? Indeed, to, just to move for a minute to the story Wicked, for, which was published for adults and which is on Broadway as a play, what is, what is the story of Wicked but really a front and forward analysis of, of the fact that we do feel the pull between good and evil mm-hmm. in ourselves? Mm-hmm. It is no longer popular to talk about uh, an, ob- an objective thing called good and, and, and an actual instinct toward evil. But inside our own breasts, we do know when we've done the right thing mm-hmm. and when we've done the wrong thing. It's not popular to talk about it, and it's kind of mortifying, and I mm-hmm. recognize that. So, I, so please forgive me, listeners. But there is such a thing as doing right and wrong. Mm. I, I, I want to highlight for, for people as well, what you described about um, writing for children and, and, and even the holiness side of it. That's the purpose, that you discovered your purpose in life, what you really wanted right. to do. And it's, it, it's one of the most powerful things anyone can have, no matter what it happens to be, right? Mm-hmm. In your case, it's this. In my case, something else. Whatever it is, to know what that purpose is. And I, I think a lot of people go through life and they don't have that. They don't know what that is. And I think purpose is, I think, one of the primary inputs to happiness when you get right down to it. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Mary Lavin, the Irish short story writer, uh, finished a story called Happiness with the kind of aperçue in which somebody says, or the narrator says, happiness is not a product, it's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Happiness is a byproduct of purpose, to reinterpret mm-hmm. what you just yeah. said. Yeah, coming out with meaning, with purpose. So you brought up Wicked, let's talk Wicked. <laughs> so tell me, are you really surprised at the unbelievable success of this book and, and the Broadway show. I mean, it's been running. It's one of the longest-running shows ever in Broadway, in the West End, in London as well. Right. Yes, 15 years at, at, and counting uh, in, in New York. I think it's the, well, I don't know what it is. But, yes, it's been running, you know, it, it beat out Hello, Dolly. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> um, so, yes, of course I'm surprised. I planned to be an artist 
in a cold water fourth floor <laughs> garret, uh, work scribbling along happily to make myself uh, survive and to try to do good for somebody else. I did not set out to be successful, and I certainly didn't set out to be prosperous. Uh, prosperity can be a problem for an artist because the muse often arrives riding the wolf who's skulking around your door. And so if you no longer have a wolf at the mm -hmm. door, you have to actually become better attuned to hear the muse speaking to one. To, your, to yourself if you're an artist. Right. Uh, so yes, of course, I'm, I'm startled, even 15 years on, 20 years on. The book is out, the book is 20 years old and soon. And is it 20? No, it's 25 years old. 25 soon. years. Yeah, so 25 years ago almost, uh, Wicked, the novel was published. And it was a big success right away. Uh, it didn't hit the New York Times list, but it was just under it, mm -hmm. just under the radar, and every uh, reporting season for the first nine reporting seasons, it sold more than the season before, which is not how things usually go. No, it's not. It was an underground success. Yeah, it, it's, that sounds like a word of mouth. It builds, it grows, it grows, it grows, right. which is completely consistent with a Broadway show that never seems to finish their run. Right. Because people are talking about it and they say they want to they see it. Right. Um, so why did you decide to tell the story and tell the story the way you did about the Wicked Witch and her backstory and what happened to her and how she became this like horrible person in the Wizard of Oz, but in fact, it's, she's a bit more complex than that. Yes. Well, let me, let me uh, stitch this together with things we've already talked about, which is we've heard about my, my, my sad, um, the sad circumstances of my birth and the... Uh, the strictness of my family yes. upbringing. My parents did not admire TV culture in the late 50s and early 60s. They did admire the library. They, they encouraged the library, and they turned off the TV. Uh, but once a year, they did allow us to come into the living room and watch the annual broadcast of The Wizard of Oz, mm. 1939 film starring Margaret Hamilton and some child star wannabe, I forget her name. Yes. Uh, and because we got that on an annual basis, it was almost like hearing the nativity story at <laughs> Christmas on an annual basis. It, it became p almost part of our religious, it was part of the, yeah, it was part of the ritual, religious right? calendar. It's it was a ritual. It, yeah, there was yeah, Christmas, yeah. Easter, there was the Wizard of Oz. It happened in childhood every year, wow. only at a certain time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the video mesmerama where everything was available all the time, 24-7. Uh, the apprehension of that story to a young child who did feel deeply about cause and effect, consequence and, mm -hmm. and moral cost, uh, it must have gotten into me yeah. deeply. We played it in the backyard. I used to organize the neighborhood kids, and we would act out The Wizard of Oz in the backyard. Flash, fast forward, excuse me, to the early 1990s. I was living in London with my then-boyfriend. I had left college teaching after having done it for about 10 years, and I was sort of foundering mm -hmm. a little bit. Several things happened in the 1991, I think it was, or around about then. One was the first Gulf War, mm. where, the Gulf, where the coalition of the willing was massing together uh, to 
uh, take back Kuwait and then um, invade Iraq. Yeah. Uh, I remember noticing in the London Times a headline that said, Saddam Hussein, the next Hitler. Mm. And I remember feeling my blood pressure change mm. when I saw the application of the word Hitler in 32-point type. Mm. Uh, and I remember thinking, well, I'm a pacifist. I'm a Quaker by instinct in some ways. But what about St. Augustine's arguments for the just war? If Saddam Hussein really is going to turn into a Hitler, what are my personal obligations to retire my pacifism and take up mm. arms against him? I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but I'm going to say that I noted in myself that the simple application of the word Hitler was enough to make me question my my own uh, moral feelings about mm. war and about this particular conflict. Words are powerful. Hitler is a powerful word, and it brings up powerful responses. I began to think about that. At the same time, there was a terrible story that some of uh, people listening today will remember about a two-year-old boy who wandered away from his mother's apron strings in a shopping mall, was lost, and was found by the end of the day uh, dead on some railroad tracks. Mm. Beautiful little boy. In England, there was first a manhunt for whoever had done this. Mm -hmm. Then when security film was discovered, it turned from a manhunt to a boy hunt. They discovered that two boys had had been seen walking around town with a little child, buying him ice cream, and then eventually he was dead. They had stoned him and put his body on the railroad tracks in order to um, make it look as if he'd been run over. When the boys, when they were identified as boys, it was pretty easy to figure out who they might be. Their names were released to the public. The laws that governed this in the UK did not conform with how we would have handled it in the US, and indeed since the laws in the UK have changed because of this case. The boys' biographies Mm. were plastered all over the newspapers and the talking heads and pulpits and dinner parties and TV shows all examined the question, what could make Mm. two boys ages 14 and 11 wake up in the morning, Mm. decide whether to have Weetabix or Cheerios for breakfast, decide to skip school and become murderers Mm. by the evening? The combination of those two questions about how one does and accepts the instinct Mm. to do a crime, to do an immoral act, to do a murder, that story set against the international story of how the community of nations was deciding how and when and why to punish Saddam Hussein for invading Kuwait came together uh, in my creative imagination and created a kind of binocular uh, miasma and I became sort of obsessed with it. Mm. I also was at the age where I was thinking, I've been writing children's books for 16 years, and I've never won any awards, and I'm not making any money. And, you know, eventually, now I was finally old enough at 37 to think I am going to eventually need to make some money. I can't, can't, <laughs> I can't live hand to mouth my whole life. Uh, and I began to think about evil and about how mm. we recognize it, how we define it, mm. how we mistake it sometimes for other things. And I decided 
just on the off chance that I might be inherently psychopathic or sociopathic, I better write about it. That's the only way I understand anything is to write stories. So I'll write a story about someone evil, and maybe I'll understand something. Maybe my creative imagination will uncover something Mm -hmm. that isn't popularly known, or at least I'll talk to myself about it. People always say, writers, write what you know. Well, what did I know? I knew, you know, Irish Catholic, you know, church music. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might not like it, but you can't really call it evil. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this compulsion to write about evil? The only other thing I really knew was children's fantasies, yeah. those ones that had saved me in childhood in the Albany Public Library. The Wizard of Oz was one of them. The movie of The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. was one of them. And when I started to try to think about an evil character with whom I could identify and write a story about my ideas about bank robbers and, you know, Hannibal Lecters and, you know, Humbert Humberts were all way up here. But really, my heart is the heart of a child. Mm. And I began to say, well, I could do a children's villain, but children's, you know, how who's really evil in a children's book? And then the ghost of Margaret Hamilton arose, almost like a visitation from the Virgin Mary. And she said, I'll get you <laughs> and your little dog. And I thought, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I've had a visitation. Uh, I've had a holy, I've had a holy moment. Everybody knows who the Wicked Witch of the West is, mm-hmm. and nobody knows a thing about her. I had read the books. There is no backstory. She's just a bad she's person. She's just a bad person. She has a bad skin condition. She's lean. She's mean. That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. And green. Uh, so I thought, this is a brilliant idea. I may not have the skill to carry it off, but I recognized it. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows this character. People will want to know how she got to be the way she was. Mm-hmm. I had this idea when I was between 37 and 38. I did not write the first sentence until the day I turned 39, the very day, June 9th. And the reason that I waited until the day I turned 39 is because my birth mother died when she was 38. And I never believed I would live to be older than my mother. Mm. Who expects to be older than their parent? That that kind of breaks the laws of comprehension. E- even though she died this unusual. Even way, though she very, died very young. young, still you just you wow. can't you know you can't mm. ever say I'm, oh I'm older than my mother. I mean it doesn't it doesn't mm. work. It's a paradox. So the day I turned thirty nine, I thought, well, Gregory, if you are now older than your mother ever was, mm-hmm. that's got to be proof if you ever needed it that you are no longer a curly-haired, bright-eyed, innocent child. Mm -hmm. You are now a grown-up, and you better pull up your big boy socks and get to work. And I began to write Wicked that day. So the, you know, the, 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 the memory and, uh, and, and the events and the ethos of, of your first mother, it's just been such a guiding light in many ways, as you're describing, including kind of the trigger point for, uh, for starting to write. How long did it take you to write the book? I, <clears throat> Excuse me. I wrote Wicked in five months, wow. although it wasn't a contiguous five months. I did two months on, mm-hmm. took two months off to make some money, worked a month, took a month off, and then finished it in two months. It. But I, but I wrote it within I wrote it within ten months. The first the first draft pretty quick, and um, five months of actual writing and five months of taking breaks. And did it uh, get picked up, bought right away? It was picked. It was bought uh, a week after it was submitted. It was uh, sent out for bid, and. There was only one bid because you had already submitted. published books by then. I guess so I had, I had were, sixteen. I had sixteen books, but but I wasn't known as a as a writer for adults. Mm-hmm. I was considered 
uh, an arriviste in the adult market, <laughs> as it were. And, uh, and I was positioned as such, too. Like, this is, a, this is a hot new novel by somebody who's never written a novel before. Well, I had written I had 16 books to my credit. But the bio, the bio copy on the dust jacket mm-hmm. of Wicked mm-hmm. didn't say that I'd written children's books. And in retrospect, I think maybe that was correct because they didn't want grandmothers to think, oh, that nice that nice churchy kind of guy, mm-hmm. Gregory McGuire, has written this nice book about a little witch. I think I'll get it for my granddaughter. Well, my book has murder, has sex, has politics, yes. uh, has philosophy in it things that are not necessarily uh, suitable reading material for mm-hmm. uh, the young and, and feeble. So it was sent out for bid. It took a, a week? It took a week to, to get the to get one offer, Judith Regan. Uh, Judith Regan, very famous. Very famous. I was uh, the first book she published at HarperCollins. She was just wow. leaving Simon & Schuster, and I was her first book that she signed up. And I think I might have been her last book that she signed up to before she came uh, to blows with HarperCollins over the O.J. Simpson book, oh. If I Did It, If I Did It. You're bringing back some memories. Yep, yep. If, yes. I loved Judith Regan. I do love her. Mm. And uh, I, admire, I admire her husband and I admire her loyalty. Yeah, um, yeah. So, okay, the book, is, the book is out. And did it sell right away? It, sell, it sold surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly well. The first book signing I ever went to uh, with it, when they sent me out, you know, nationally on a book tour, and there were only seven people who came to the book signing. Uh, one of them was a relative of mine. Uh, one of them was a friend. Three of them were street people. And nobody <laughs> bought a book. I bought two books. I bought one for my friend and one for my relative. And I thought this is not going very well. Uh, it, the book, it, I, I will. There's no dishonesty in, in me in this regard. Book got a pretty fiercely bad review in the New York Times by Michiko Kakatani. Uh, and I was devastated. Mm. That was like a Thursday. You know, 16 column inches of, of permission to, uh, for the public at large to kill me for being a bad writer, and this was a bad book. Uh, the following Sunday, it got a front page over-the-fold review in the book section of the L.A. Times, mm-hmm. and the movie offer started rolling in the next morning. And so that was a very good review in the L.A. Times. All the other reviews were, were fine. The only bad review it got was what I thought at the time was probably the most important review. Yeah, in New York but, Times, you think about it. Yep, yep, yeah. but it wasn't, um, it wasn't the most important review. And furthermore, as I live and breathe, Michiko um, sent me a postcard. I think she got the book wrong. <laughs> so I, I don't think it was a good review in that. I think she didn't get it. Well, but, what, do, what do critics know anyways, right? Well, right, 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 right. You know, Miles My, Davis used to say, you know, the critics know know nothing. Uh, but it really bugged him if a critic didn't like one yeah. of his one of his albums. And he he be, it's kind of like these sports stars they get motivated by a small little grudge, and then they just have to yeah. you know, overwhelm. Yeah. So um, so you got movie offers right away. Right away, they started the phone started ringing Monday morning, uh, and that isn't where the success of the book is from though the success of the book as i said was the fact that it had a beautiful cover has a beautiful cover and people started reading it and loving it and talking about it immediately yeah. uh the book was under development at universal as a film for a number of years by uh, demi moore oh. uh and her production company but they were having a hard time getting a script that everybody could get behind now, I need to remind you and, and listeners that Wicked came out 12 to 24 months before the first Harry Potter, 
before the first Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings mm. film, before Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. Oh. In a way, it was a kind of advanced, you know, yes, tum- that's right. announcement that yeah. literary fantasy is coming back. Yeah. Uh, but what that meant at Universal Studios and in Hollywood was nobody had seen a fantasy movie they didn't get, that they didn't was going to cost $100 million hmm. and could bring in as so what, much. So more. what ended up happening with that? What ended up happening is uh, they got script after script yeah, after script yeah. and were not really happy. It was also a story that is as much about women and women's relationships as uh, it is about men. No big part for Mel Gibson in, in Wicked. And they were reluctant to put big money into a movie that was headlined by actresses. Wow. So Stephen Schwartz, the eventual composer of the Broadway play, right. uh, was handed the book by Holly Near, the folk singer, who had, had read it and admired it. He read about a third of it and said, this is my comeback to Broadway. Uh. And his lawyers got in touch with my lawyers. Well, first he went to, to Hollywood and his lawyer said, Universal owns it. So he went to Universal. He went rap, rap, rap on the door of Mark Platt, the producer at Universal, and said, Mark, the scuttlebutt around town is that you're having a hard time getting a script for this book, Wicked. And Mark Platt said, yes, that's correct. So, and Stephen Schwartz said, I think I know why. Because ever since 1939, people all around the world know that the citizens of Oz sing. <laughs> and this story should be a musical mm. first, and then you can film it. And furthermore, if, I, if Universal will bankroll it, I will write the musical. It will be a musical on Broadway, and then after it's a success, mm. you can make it into a movie. Mm. Uh, Mark Platt and everybody else in Hollywood had been seeing the gazillion dollars that Disney was raking in from The Lion King and Beauty and That's the Beast that, on yeah. Broadway. And, right. and other movie studios wanted to get their fingers in that pie mm-hmm. of Broadway money, mm-hmm. which is of a different order than, um, than movie money. Yeah. Uh, and so Mark so went Platt, to Broadway first. Well, Mark Platt flew out to talk to me first and explain what was going on. And then he said, Stephen Schwartz wants to meet with you. And it's re- ultimately, it's going to be your decision. Can I interrupt for a second? Sure. How does this work in terms of ownership? Intellectual properties, we call it, in, uh, yeah. in other fields. Like you own, you own the copyright, right? But you made some type of deal with uh, Paramount, uh, Universal, Universal, yeah, yeah. right? Um, yeah, but they so had how much they, control. Did you have in this? They had, well, they they had an option, but they hadn't bought the book mm-hmm. proper. They 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 they. I signed a contract that said if they get a script and are ready to start principal shooting, mm-hmm. principal photography, at that point. I have to sell them a book. They have to pay me the rest of the money for it. Mm-hmm. There was no, no more negotiation at that. But since they hadn't gotten there yet, mm-hmm. eventually the rights were going to revert to me if they didn't make the film mm. uh, because it was only an option. It okay. wasn't a purchase. Uh, they, they knew that. That's how the contract was written. Mm-hmm. And so Mark Platt said, Stephen Schwartz wants to meet you. Stephen Schwartz and I met mm-hmm. in Connecticut. We went for a walk through the woods. And Stephen Schwartz said, I know that the purchase price of your book for a Hollywood movie is a big amount of money and that writers, especially writers with small adopted children at their ankles, would like to have that big amount of money so they can pay off some of their mortgage or all of their mortgage and and rest a little more comfortably. Uh, However, he said, what a play does, what a musical does, 
is a different thing to the psyche and the spirit than what a movie does. Mm. In a play, if a character walks onto the stage and live musicians release a melody underneath them and they begin to sing, it's like a Shakespeare soliloquy and it goes directly to every pair of ears in the audience. It is an intimate experience. Your book, said Stephen Schwartz, is very 19th century, very pre-Freud. People are filled with big moral questions and big emotions, and that's the stuff that musical theater can handle, possibly in a way even better than what movies can do. However wonderful movies are, the theatrical experience is a different animal. Well, you know, I'm a gay man. Inside myself, I was thinking, you know, no argument with me. Broadway, you know. <laughs> but I had to have custody of my of my uh, of my future and of my children's rights and capacity to eat. So I kept my Scottish Presbyterian demeanor and said, mm. "Yes, well, I, I, it makes sense to me." But he got nervous mm. and he said, "I'm so convinced that you are going to eventually see." the rightness of what I'm proposing, that I will say to you, I will admit to you, I've already conceived and written the first song. And I said, oh, you have, have you? And he said, yes, it's called No One Mourns the Wicked. Hmm. And when he said those five words, he clinched the deal. Hmm. He didn't know he clinched the deal for about a year because I had my lawyers, sure. you know, You got to negotiate the, the deal. But in my own heart, I thought, if, if he recognizes that the reason I wrote Wicked was not to do a Saturday Night Live skit about The Wizard of Oz, but to take a a popularly held story and to examine its principles, and that, in fact, the identification of the enemy as evil and as subhuman Mm -hmm. is a fault for which we are all Mm -hmm. culpable Mm -hmm. and all capable of, of embracing. Uh, mm. No one mourns the wicked. It's the way he's talking to me to say he gets what this book is yeah. about. Yeah. And the book was written for its theme, not for its plot and characterizations. The theme came from the murdered child yeah. and the invaded country. Mm. And when he said, No one mourns the wicked, I thought, Okay, you got the job. You'll hear about it eventually. Right. Wow. Yeah. So uh, the lyrics. Were they taken from your actual prose? Very few of them. No, almost nothing. Uh, indeed, there's, there are only <laughs> there's only about uh, fifteen words in the whole two hours and forty minute play that are directly lifted out of my prose. Huh. Uh, but the the lyrics so represent things that I put in the book that I actually feel mm-hmm. that some people who've known me very well have seen the play and have turned to me and said, did you write that, that song for good? Mm. Did you write that song, that, that penultimate song that the two witches sing to each other? It sounds so like I've written, I've composed music myself. I was a performer for a while. Uh, and I have to say no, but doesn't it sound like I might have? Because he, 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 really, got, he, he, got, really got, he got it so yeah, he really got closely. It. Wow. Um, and uh, so you never wrote or were asked to write a screenplay for this? No, I did not ask. Indeed, not only did I not ask, I uh, I had the option to have some sort of creative control or mm-hmm. veto power, mm-hmm. and I made the decision that I was a novelist. I had trained myself as a novelist, uh, and all the writers I'd ever read had trained me 
to be, I hope, a good novelist. And while I love the theater, I'm not, I don't have theater expertise. And the people who are writing music and writing lyrics and yeah. are doing the dramaturgy and writing the, the book, as it were, of the play uh, are the ones with the experience. And I should honor their own calling by giving them as much license as they need in order to make a work of art out of the raw material. Yeah, I mean, that's very mature, isn't it? <laughs> Do you remember? It was about that time uh, Anne Rice uh, was taking out full-page ads in the New York Times because Interview with a Vampire had come out based right, on her books, and right. she didn't like it. And her full-page ads in the New York Times said basically something like, Interview with a Vampire sucks, and <laughs> so does this movie. <laughs> and... and uh, uh, the Vampire Sucks, and so does this movie. And I sort of thought, well, I, I appreciated her sentiment about that, um, but I didn't want to have that kind of profile. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to trust the writers. And Stephen Schwartz had told me I could trust him. Right. By the way, when, um, when the Harry Potter books started to come out, did that give a boost to your sales again? Some people said that the school for sorcerers in Wicked, Shiz, was based on Hogwarts. <laughs> but it was but actually it, it preceded it, yes. yes. Uh, and indeed, there are there are other people, Ursula Le Guin and Jane Yolen. The, the idea of a school for magicians, Diana Wynne Jones, is not original to me, and it's not original to J.K. Rowling. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a standard uh, trope, as it were. Yes. Uh, but yes, I, it did give it did give a boost. The fact that adults were reading Harry Potter meant that uh, even more people could come and find. Mm-hmm. Right. Wicked, and it's three sequels, uh, Son of a Witch, A Lion Among Men, and Out of Oz. More people could find that quartet of books mm. uh, once it was no longer something that had to be read behind closed doors or uh, covered with brown paper. Yeah, wow. This is great. Um, there's a couple more things I want to I want to touch on before we uh, wrap up. Great uh, conversation with uh, Gregory McGuire. Um, uh, Let's, uh, let's put on your, um, your counseling uh, hat and your advice hat. Imagine that you can, you, can, you can magically, speaking about magic, magically go back to when you were 21 years old and you yourself sitting here today with me and everything you know about the world, everything you learned, everything that, that didn't work, that did work, what piece of advice would you give your, yourself at the age of, uh, of 21? Um, uh, about about anything, about, about writing, about life, about about relationships, about about the world. Um, what, what what springs to mind? Well, that's a really good question, and a really good question deserves a considered answer. Uh, we don't have the time for me to sit and muse and go get a cup of coffee and come back. <laughs> but I I will say that there are one or two things that I learned later mm. that I thought the reason these. Um, life lessons, if you will, mean something to me now is that I was ready to hear them. And I was probably ready mm. at, at 21 to hear them. I just, you have to wait until you stumble across the path of something in order to learn it. One, one way of characterizing it is uh, what British moral philosopher Roger Scruton once said, which is that the consolation of the imaginary is not imaginary consolation. And what that says to me is that don't demote the fact that you are a fantasist Mm. as second-class material. Mm. 
Consolation is consolation. That is something we are lucky enough if we can give to anybody else. I think I had to grow mm. to accept that art is consoling and that art of any variety, if it's honest to itself, can have the power to console deeply. If I had known that earlier, if I'd known that when I was mm. 21, I, I mean, I didn't waffle very much in my life. I have not, I've not been a waffler, mm-hmm. but I might mm-hmm. have been even braver even, than, even than braver. I've been. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of a lot of things to talk about there, but I know we, we're probably near, <laughs> near, near the time limit here. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about, because uh, uh, on the podcast I ask everyone this question, because people like to know uh, about their husband, their wife, their spouse, their partner. How'd you meet? Oh, I met my husband, the painter Andy Newman, at an arts colony in upstate New York, a place called Blue Mountain Center. Uh, he was there to prepare for New York opening, I was there working on my second novel for adults, which was called Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister, mm-hmm. kind of retelling of the Cinderella story. And what was curious and, and tremendously romantic about it is that he was uh, fairly newly single and was looking to date. Uh, and I was not technically single, mm-hmm. although my, my partner of... Uh, 18 years, had taken a job 10,000 miles away and was mm-hmm. not expected to return for five or six years. Wow. So I was effectively single, uh, kind of without wanting to be so. We met each other. We fell in love within about two weeks. Hmm. And the question to this day is, who was more startled, me, who wasn't looking to fall in love with anybody, mm-hmm. or him, who was looking to date again but not to date a man? Uh, wow, that was a nice twist you threw into that story. I didn't yeah. think that was coming. Yeah, yeah. no, he, wow. neither did he. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, story, stories of life, you know, they're just, uh, there's so many, there's so many different paths that people yep. take, so many different things that happen. 20, you know, I, I will say 21 years later, we are now legally married, and our uh, three adopted children are all almost out of their, um, the last one is getting out of high school in a few months. Oh, but, so we have had a wonderful right. life together. Fantastic. And we have, we jumped on it. We were late parents. It was a second marriage, as it were, for both of us. Mm. And we couldn't have been happier. By, by the way, with, with teenage uh, kids or you know, kids growing all the way up, you seem to have an unfair advantage in understanding uh, kids and being, you know, the writing that you've done and, 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 and kind of the, the whole genre you're in. Uh, how's that? How did that play out? Um, luckily, that's a little bit too intimate for me to answer honestly. <laughs> there, there are a few screens and veils of modesty do uh, fall upon my brow. Uh, but I will say that I entered into the adoption of children thinking, I know what it means to feel abandoned. Mm. And if I can use, again, mm. if I can use that understanding, that memory of pain and that a belief in the possibility for survival mm. to help my children survive not being adopted, but to survive the abandonment, the initial abandonment. Yeah. If I can use what I know to help them, well, again, I bet my first mother would be just tickled mm. pink. Yeah. That, and I know my second mother was. And she I was. told my second mother, I am partly adopting these children as an homage to you. Mm. You took me on. Wow. You took on my older brothers and sisters. You didn't have to do that. I want to turn around and do the same. Wow. She must, how did she react to that? I can imagine that would be pretty powerful. She said, oh, stop talking nonsense. Yeah, stop talking nonsense. She was Irish Catholic. Yeah, stop she, talking nonsense. She wasn't going to let it get yeah, to the yeah, emotions, but yeah. it, it, it affected her. Yeah. No doubt. 
Um, last, uh, last question. As you describe your life and, and you know, the, the father that was the writer, the journalist, and siblings that were writers and living in the library and starting to write at the age of 10, it's hard to actually imagine you doing anything else, but that's what the question is. If you were able to start all over again, um, what would it be that you'd end up doing with your life? I'd have to have a few different talents. I, I do love performing and I love singing, but I have only an okay voice. I don't have a voice mm. with a lot of character. Mm. I, I'm, not, I'm not pitchy. I can, I can do it and I have a fairly good range, but it's uninteresting to listen to and I concede that. <laughs> I would love to have been a performer, either mm. a singer or possibly even a performer on the stage. I am a bit of a ham. Uh, I also was, was interested in architecture, as a very young kid, before I even thought of writing uh, stories or, or drawing pictures, when I was in six, seven years old, yeah. I found Section 8 real estate from the Sunday New York Times magazine and began to be able to read floor plans in fancy penthouse apartments <laughs> that were being <laughs> nice you know, going. That, yes. and, and I kind of got the, I got the sense of uh, impulse to design, mm. Which is not well, not all that unlike the impulse to create story, yeah. creating spaces, creating beautiful spaces through which people can live their lives yeah. is is rather like creating stories, rather like creating theater or creating music. All of them are are, are passages through time toward some sort of resolution or understanding. Mm-hmm. So they're all of a all of a family instinct. I would not have wanted to go into either politics or insurance. Yeah, well, those those we uh, we're, we're we're glad you never did that and stuck to where uh, to what you did. Thank you, uh, Greg McGuire. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.